1: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 488. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. little special show today. We have Hugo winning David D. Levine, who is our writer and narrator on today's show. Then we have Mr. Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi Alien Commentary. All about Alien, Mr. Mark Zickery, who's Space Command, who raised that amazing amount on Kickstarter. I've got a little commentary from Mark as well. So that's all coming into today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. We will, because it is a big show today, jump straight in with the main fiction. Like I say, End of the Silk Road by David D. Levine. Originally published in Old Venus. Uh, Another story from that fantasy. We're going to play with a lot, so you just don't have to go and get it. David D. Levine is the author of the novels Arabella of Mars and Arabella of Battle of Venus, as well as over 50 SF and fantasy short stories. His short story, Tikit, 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 won the Hugo and has been shortlisted for awards, including the Hugo Nebula, Campbell, and Sturgeon. Stories have appeared in Asimov's Analog, FS. Fantasy and Science Fiction say, and Tor.com and numerous Year's Best Anthologies and his award-winning collection, Space Magic. Like I say, its story is narrated by the author and it's not often you get a good writer of Dave's caliber. Do the do the business as well with the narration. So, David, thank you so much for this. I'll put a link on the David site, daviddlevine.com. Pop over there. Like you see. if you look back in our archives as well, we've, we've played a couple of David's stories and just a beautiful kind of science fiction writer. Fantastic. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The End of the Silk Road by David D. Levine.
2: I got off the red car at the Port of Los Angeles stop, knocking some geezer in the knee with my suitcase as I did. Sorry, bud, I reassured his scowl. Nothing personal, but I'm in a hurry. Somehow I managed to cross the street, dodging between delivery vans laden with bananas and speeding Hudsons, without losing my suitcase, my fedora, or the ticket envelope clutched in my hand. The ticket said Pier A, Berth 152. May 24, 1936, 3.40 p.m. My watch said 3.05. Pierre stretched ahead of me, a huge yellow-painted shed looking as long as five football fields. I jammed the suitcase under my arm, held my hat on with the other hand, put the ticket in my mouth, and ran for it. The Three Planet Airlines steward was just closing the gate as I rushed in, ringing with sweat, and presented my soggy, toothmark ticket. He gave me the fish eye at first, but when he saw the words First Class at the top, his attitude changed completely. "'Welcome aboard, Mr. Drayton,' he said, and waved me up the gangplank with a broad smile. Halfway up, I took a moment to mop my brow and admire the view. The port of Los Angeles sprawled out below me, an enormous model railroad set complete with life-size trucks, trains, and cranes. Off to my left were the sea terminals, where oil tankers went out and banana boats came in. To my right... The interplanetary cargo docks mostly work at Marswood freighters, plus a few of the new cargo airliners, shining silver whales with dozens of propellers on each wing. One of the Marswood ships was just taking off as I watched, rising into a clear blue sky under a white cloud of its own. Sixty or more Venus silk balloons full of hot air straining at their tethers. And behind me... The A.S. Santa Fe loomed at the top of the gangplank like a streamlined skyscraper with wings, floating low in the water with a full load of fuel and supplies for her two-week flight to Venus. Gleaming with fresh paint and three-planet lines yellow, her engines already roaring, she was fast, clean, modern, beautiful—everything Victor Grossman was not. He ought to hate her. She and her speedy sisters were making a hash of his business— Yet that hide-bound old silk merchant had sprung for a first-class ticket her, for a beat-up old private eye whose guts he'd hated for twenty years. Why? It was that mystery, as much as the very substantial retainer accompanying the ticket, that had overcome this little fly's quite understandable reluctance to accept the spider's invitation to his silken parlor. That and Maria, of course. The steward at the boarding door was gesturing impatiently. I waved my hat in the air, called out, So long, L.A., be back soon, and hurried to meet my fate. The first-class observation lounge was pretty swank, with a magnificent bar at one end, enormous curved windows at the other, and a broad expanse of plush sky-blue carpet in between, scattered with little tables. I ordered an orange juice and received two surprises. The drink... Came in a spherical aluminum container all deco and streamlined with a little sippy straw, and it was on the house. And there was a time I would have made the management regret that decision even for the price of a first class ticket. I sipped my orange juice and wandered to the window, where Brooks Brothers suits jostled elbows with each other at the rail to watch the takeoff. From here we had a great view of the eight enormous propellers on each wing, each bigger than my house, but even as the engine spun up to speed, their no-doubt deafening roar was reduced by the double glass to a throaty hum like a Rolls-Royce. There was almost no impression of motion as we thrummed forward, leaving a broad, V-shaped wake behind us, then lifted from the water, smooth as a swan. THE CAPTAIN BANKED AND TURNED IN A BIG HALF CIRCLE AS WE CLIMBED, GIVING US A FABULOUS VIEW OF THE GLITTERING CITY OF ANGELS, THEN RISING STILL HIGHER OVER THE BROWN HILLS and THE DESERT BEYOND. DETAILS FELL AWAY AS WE CLIMBED, CALIFORNIA DWINDLING TO A CARPET OF BROWN TRACED WITH HIGHWAYS UPON WHICH HUPMOBILES AND DE SOTOS CRAWLED LIKE ANTS, AND THEN EVEN THE HIGHWAYS FADED TO INVISIBILITY. Pretty soon we'd gone so high that we could see Baja and the Gulf of California to our right, and the Rockies ahead, the horizon visibly curving away in all directions, and a few puffy clouds drifting by below us. A loudspeaker in the ceiling cleared its throat, then politely requested that passengers return to their staterooms for the passage through the turbulent zone. Quite a contrast with my last such passage, I thought, when it had been a Marine sergeant bellowing, "'All right, you leathernecks, strap in!' Back in my stateroom I found that the steward had unpacked my bag and left a brochure about the passage titled Rounding the Horn on the Bed. After putting my things back in the suitcase I travel light and I like to know exactly where my gear is I read about how the Earth's atmosphere, rotating along with the planet collided with the interplanetary atmosphere to create a perpetual zone of turbulence which had claimed many a ship in the days of Marswood ships and iron men "'But aboard the Santa Fe I need have no fear. "'Her mighty engines and modern appointments "'would guarantee a swift and comfortable passage through the zone. "'And indeed, though the leather armchair was fixed to the deck "'and equipped with a seat-belt, I never needed it. "'Even at the worst, the liner's gentle jostling "'did nothing more than rock me to sleep.'" "'After breakfast,' a remarkably tasty concoction of bacon and eggs wrapped in something I'd call a tortilla, but which the menu described as a crepe, I drifted back to the observation lounge, where I slipped my feet under the straps by the rail and sipped coffee from one of those spherical deco things, while I contemplated the globe of the earth, floating like a big glass marble in the endless cloud-flecked blue of the sky. From here all mankind's schemes, ambitions, and fighting had dwindled to nothing— Dust bowls, floods, wars and rumors of wars, all were as invisible as the petty thefts, embezzlements and infidelities that usually bought me my daily bread. I couldn't even see where one continent left off and another began, never mind countries. My reverie was interrupted by a splash, a thud, and a petite little shriek as a soft, silk-clad form caromed off my shoulder, leaving a sphere that smelled of gin and vermouth spinning in the air between us. Slipping my feet out of the straps, I held onto the rail with one hand, and reached up with the other, grasping the dame by one slender wrist and pulling her down out of the air, to where she could reach the rail. Nice gams, I thought, as she struggled to compose her dress, her hat, and her purse, all of which were trying to float off in different directions. Most of the other female passengers were wearing trousers. Apparently this one hadn't read the brochure. Her drink, I noted, was getting away, a spiral of shimmering droplets spilling from the end of the straw as it tumbled. I snagged the sphere out of the air and snapped it to one of the magnets lining the rail for that purpose next to my coffee. I was just wondering what to do with the spilled martini droplets when an automaton waiter appeared, smoothly sweeping them up in a pristine white napkin. And just as well, it would have been uncouth as well as stupidly self-destructive for me to slurp them up out of the air with my tongue. First time in free fall? I asked the dame after the waiter had refreshed our drinks. And here I thought I was hiding it so well, she replied. "'Arching one plucked eyebrow in self-mockery "'as she daubed at a spot on her venusian silk sleeve. "'She was about my age, but still a looker, "'honey blonde with some meat on her bones, "'just the way I like em "'And you? <laughs> "'Not my first spin on this merry-go-round, no. "'Droplets of blood wobbling in smoky air "'and the smell of gunpowder. "'I took a big swig of coffee "'to wash the memory out of my mouth.' We chatted for a while, and I couldn't help but notice as she sipped her drink that she was inspecting me from beneath the questionable cover of her hat's veil. I'm not sure just what she saw in a craggy 47-year-old P.I. with a broken nose and graying temples, but she made her move after the second martini. "'Is it true what they say?' she said, tilting her head downward and looking at me through her eyelashes. "'About what two people can get up to in free-fall?' "'I have known people who are quite enthusiastic about it,' I replied, not admitting any specifics. "'She turned from me and looked out the window, where the earth was just vanishing behind the wing. "'Pity about the view,' she said. "'I wonder if we can see it from my stateroom.' "'The Santa Fe really did have the very latest word in passenger comforts, "'including some strategically placed straps and grab bars on the bed-frame.' After we'd tried them all out, the blonde turned on the lights, lit a cigarette, and just looked at me for a time, the smoke mingling with her drifting hair before it curled away toward the ventilation grill on the wall. I looked at her, too, admiring the way her creamy breasts bobbed gently in the air. "'Who was it?' she asked. "'Who was what?' "'The girl you were thinking of instead of me.' She took another drag on the cigarette. "'I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a good time.' but I know when a man isn't paying attention. I looked out the window as I considered my reply. We'd left the curtains open. No one but the whole shining earth was out there to look in on us. Someone I haven't seen in over twenty years, I said. Must have been quite a girl to hold your attention that long. The earth stared back at me. Wars and rumors of wars, all invisible at this distance, but still there nonetheless. I didn't deserve her, I said. Cook's port had changed a lot in twenty years, and not for the better. The small and shabby passenger dock from which i had departed had been replaced with a grand palatial terminal, which had itself fallen into disrepair, with chipped terrazzo and falling plaster and only five of the sixty slots on the arrivals board occupied. I was sure the cargo terminals had seen even bigger changes following the silk industry's rising and falling fortunes. Emerging from the terminal whose ceiling fans were tarnished but still slowly turning, was like stepping into a sauna. "'Ah, Venus,' I said, fanning myself with my hat. "'How I haven't missed you!' Though it was just past noon, the sky above the port was a curdled mess of grey cloud and weak fitful light the best old sol could manage even at a distance much closer than Earth's. Worm lights— Each sucking a sugar tit at the top of a light pole illuminated the square fronting the terminal where a row of cabs awaited the arriving passengers. "'Superior silk,' I said to the cabbie as I tossed my suitcase into the cab's howdah, clambering up after it. "'Officer Plant!' the cabbie gurgled from the driver's saddle. He was a froggy, a Venusian Aboriginal, to be polite, crammed into a human-style cab driver's outfit complete with a uniform cap that perched unsteadily behind his bulging eyes." His collar and cuffs were frayed and damp with the moisture that oozed continually from his pale, greenish skin. "'Office, I guess,' I said. The cabbie's throat-sack worked in acknowledgment. He pushed the flag on the meter down with one webbed hand and goaded the cab with his heel-spurs. The cab wuffled and gurgled as it rose unsteadily to its six-suckered feet, then took off down the street at a shambling run, leaving me hanging on to the grab-bar with one hand and my hat with the other.' The suitcase I wedged between my hip and the howdah's side. The breeze helped a little, but not much. The Superior Silk Corporation of Venus sprawled across a half-square-mile plot not far from the port, which wasn't surprising, given that almost all their product was exported to Mars and Earth for use in airship balloons. Seven vast hangars, each one an arched wooden structure as long as a football field and over a hundred feet tall, stood in an arc around the manufacturing plant, a blocky collection of green brick buildings topped by dozens of smokestacks. Only about a quarter of those stacks were sending their black fumes up to join the gray and muddy sky, but the cabby drove his mount toward a building that stood out from that great industrial agglomeration like a Chrysler hood ornament on a woodpile. Superior Silk's office block held itself aloof from the ugly utilitarian buildings where the actual work was done. It was built to impress. Three stories of streamlined aluminum and glass, all Art Deco curves and parallel lines. A large neon sign, reading only Superior, cast its harsh blue-white light over the building streets and swamps nearby. A huge, stylized aluminum structure of a Venusian silkworm loomed over the main entrance. As I passed beneath it, I couldn't help but notice that the electric light that illuminated its left eye was burned out. After I presented my card to the receptionist, Mike Drayton, private investigator, it read, with the old address crossed out and the new one written in pen, she used the intercom to call the executive offices. A minute later, the chairman's secretary appeared to take my hat and suitcase and lead me up to his office. I was not at all surprised she was honey-blonde, zaftig, and very pleasing to my eye. Grossman's tastes had always matched my own. "'Mr. Grossman's expecting you,' she said, as she gestured me through the double doors. Grossman's office was even more deluxe than the exterior of the building, the aluminum and steel joined by Marswood and oak trim that would never have withstood Cooksport's spring rains. An electric fan whirred silently overhead." "'Welcome to Venus, Mr. Drayton,' said the great man, extending a hand with something that could have been mistaken for sincerity. "'I trust you had a pleasant trip.' "'I lost a hundred bucks on zero-gravity billiards,' I replied, taking the hand with something that could have been mistaken for respect. Victor Grossman was still tall, lean, and impeccably dressed, white silk from collet spats, of course, with the shine and luster of the really expensive stuff. But in the twenty years since I'd last seen him, he'd lost the last of his hair, picked up some wrinkles, and added dark bags under his eyes. Bags crafted the finest Venusian silk, I was sure. "'You're probably wondering why I've asked you to come all this way,' he said, seating himself behind his broad immaculate desk and gesturing me to the supplicant's chair. Uh, "'The thought had crossed my mind,' I said, "'especially considering the first-class airline ticket, uh, for which thanks, by the way.' "'I have an immediate requirement for a man to perform a confidential task,' he said, steepling his fingers. "'A man of great personal integrity, a man with bravery, wit, and keen investigative skills, in short, a man with your unique qualities. "'I'm flattered, also surprised,' he waved a hand dismissively. "'I know we have not always seen eye to eye on every issue, Mr. Drayton, but I am not a man to carry a grudge. "'That, I knew, was a bald-pated lie.' "'but the weight of Grossman's retainer in my bank account held my mouth shut. "'So why'd you send all the way to L.A. for this paragon of virtue?' "'Because there is no one on Venus I can trust.' "'That made two of us. "'The corrupt swamp of Venusian politics and jurisprudence "'made the Wagunta Bog look like a rose garden, "'which is one of the things that had driven me off the planet in the first place. "'Grossman, of course, had been another. "'All right, I'm here. What's the gig?' He unlocked a desk drawer and extracted a file folder. The first thing I found in it was a photograph of a fat froggy with a scarred snout. That, said Grossman, as though indicating a slug that had crawled onto his rose bush, is Ula Ogulma, a prominent local fungus dealer. His very successful legitimate business in construction fungi is a front for an even more successful Ulka ring. Huh, I said. Ulka. "'was one of the nastier products of the fecund venusian biosystem, "'a drug with a powerful kick and even more powerfully addictive. "'So what's it to you?' "'My brother George is an Ulka addict. "'He has gone into substantial debt to Mr. Ugulma's syndicate. "'Sorry to hear that. "'He is a weak man, Mr. Drayton, but he is my brother. "'I need you to investigate and document Mr. Ugulma's little side business "'so thoroughly that even the Cooksport police can't overlook it. Uh, That's a tall order, Mr. Grossman. They can be extremely myopic. I'm confident in your abilities, Mr. Drayton. Once I have your documentation in hand, I can offer it to Mr. Ogulma in exchange for forgiveness of my brother's debt. Drugs, blackmail, a focus on the money over his own brother's welfare. That was Grossman to a T. Uh, That won't keep your brother from going right back into hawk. I said. Leave that part to me, Mr. Drayton. It's Ogulma I want. I flipped through the file folder. It had names, addresses, schedules, a few more photographs. I can work with this. I get 50 a day, plus expenses. Agreed. And there's a $500 bonus for you at the end of the job. I raised one eyebrow at that. I assume this is on the down low? Extremely confidential, yes. All payments henceforth will be in cash. My favorite flavor. I closed the folder and tapped it on the desktop to settle the papers I'd disturbed. The job smelled fishy. I'd expected nothing better from the moment I received Grossman's radiogram, but his story was self-centered, underhanded, and nasty enough that I almost believed it. I could spend the retainer on a week of high living at the La Guanta Bay Casinos, tell him I'd found nothing, and use the return ticket to fly back to sunny L.A. Or I could do the job, milk him for all I could get, and maybe catch a glimpse of Maria. Maria. I extended my hand, this time with a measure of genuine warmth. All right, Mr. Grossman, you got yourself a PI. We shook on the deal. I resisted the impulse to count my fingers afterward. After the conclusion of our deal, Grossman's secretary, her name was Lily, gave me the nickel tour of the plant. We started at Hangar 1, where millions of Venusian silkworms dropped a hundred feet from the ceiling dangling on their shining threads. The smell was as appalling as I remembered. "'Hell of a life,' I said. "'Start at the top, work your way to the bottom on a string you pull from your butt, "'then when you get where you're going they take away everything you've accomplished "'and make you start all over again. "'At least they're well fed.' She tilted her honey-blonde head. "'You know a lot about silkworms for a detective, Mr. Drayton. Uh, "'My dad was a silk salesman. "'He dragged us to Venus when I was twelve "'and I worked in the hangars for a while before I became a cop.' "'That was a business that stank even worse than silkworms, as I'd learned. "'Then I joined the Marines. "'Is that where you got the broken nose?' "'I looked down in embarrassment. Uh, "'That was a bar fight, actually. "'It gives you character.' "'Her smile was heartbreaking. "'You must have some fascinating stories. "'Would you care to join me for dinner?' "'If only I were twenty years younger,' I thought. Uh, "'Sorry, miss, I've had a long day. "'In fact, I think I'd better cut this tour short and find my hotel.' "'Get a fresh start tomorrow.' "'Some other time, perhaps?' "'I should have told her to back off, "'but I didn't want to bruise her little heart unnecessarily. "'She looked like such a sweet, innocent kid. "'Perhaps,' I said. "'Leaving the plant, I found myself in the middle "'of the departing shift-change crowd, "'humans and froggies chatting amiably together "'as they made their way home by bus, boat, foot, or flipper. "'I listened in as I walked.' Beneath the casual talk of weather, kids, and squabble ball, there was an undercurrent of concern. Everyone knew that with the rise of airliners, metal-bodied internal combustion contraptions using wings instead of balloons to reach the interplanetary atmosphere, the silk trade was changing. Fat military contracts were going the way of the sand snake, and fashion wasn't picking up the slack. But Superior appeared to be doing better than its competitors, at least." Then, as I reached the street and raised a hand to hail a cab, I heard a voice that stopped me in my tracks. "'Darling!' she called from the rear window of a black eight-cylinder Duesenberg that had just pulled up to the curb. Importing it from Earth must have cost ten times my annual income for the shipping alone, but hearing that voice and seeing that face again were worth far more to me than the car. Maria Grossman, nay Keen, still had the bluest eyes, the sweetest smile, and the silkiest honey-blonde hair of any girl on Venus. Maybe that's just infatuation talking, but I don't think so. The years might have made her a little plumper, a little paler, and a little sadder around the eyes, but from where I stood she still looked just as good as she had when I would left Venus twenty years ago. But before I could return her endearment and run to her arms I heard another voice, almost as familiar but not nearly so pleasant, from behind me. "'Sweetie!' it was Grossman, of course, striding from Superior's offices with the brisk, confident step of a rich man whose beautiful and much younger wife had just called him Darling. She swung open the door as he reached the car, they kissed, and he climbed in. She hadn't seen me at all. I stood at the curb like a statue of The Sucker while the car purred away to their luxurious home in Bentwood or Wunga'una or some other neighborhood with servants and swimming pools and real earth trees. Right then, I was wishing real hard I was still a drinking man. I spent most of the evening sitting in the hotel bar anyway, pounding down glass after glass of soda water as though I had something to prove, which I did. If I could sit within arm's reach of a whole bar full of alcohol and not touch a drop, I'd prove that I was still my own man, not a slave to the bottle. Of course, at the moment, I was Grossman's man, but the principle was still sound. She was the one who left me, I told the bartender, who listened as attentively as you might expect for a barman whose only customer was paying a dolly thirty-five a glass for soda water and tipping heavily. I'd say he was all ears, but froggies don't have external ears. I wish to hell I knew what I could have done to keep her. Cogna, he gurgled. What? Cogna, it's a kind of fish, a courting gift. Dames love a guy who brings them lots of fish.' I sipped my soda and listened to the sweat trickling down my back. The barman had something there. Even though Grossman was fifteen years older than me and not particularly handsome, with the fat military contracts he'd landed in the early days of the war, he could offer Maria a hell of a lot more fish than I could. But there had been something between us. Something real. Something bigger and better than money. And she'd proved it that night in La Guanta Bay, eighteen months after the wedding, when we'd met by chance at the casino. We wound up in bed together less than half an hour later. When I woke up and saw her beautiful sleeping face in the worm light that oozed through the hotel window, I knew if I stayed on Venus we'd both regret it sooner or later. I didn't wake her up to say goodbye. I'd run off to the Marines that very morning, and after beating the krauts at Ceres and Io, and losing a lot of good friends while suffering nothing worse than a broken nose myself, I'd crawled into the bottle. When I managed to drag myself out again, I found myself back in California, where I'd been born and raised, and that's where I'd stayed, because I knew if I ever went back to Venus I'd regret it sooner or later. Well, now it was later. I'd come back, and I regretted it. I stared at the ceiling fan all night, thinking and sweltering instead of sleeping, but by the time Venus's lame excuse for dawn rolled around at least I'd made up my mind. I'd come here to do a job, I would do the job, take as much of Grossman's money as I could, and get out. After breakfast, I hailed a cab and gave the cabbie Mr. Ugulma's business address. I always like to verify any information my clients provide, especially when the client is someone as trustworthy as Grossman. Ogulma's shop was on the swampier side of town, a typical Venusian structure that looked like a banyan tree topped with a slice of peat bog. The sign out front read, Ugulma Fungi, in English, with two lines of Venetian squiggles below it presumably the same thing in the two major local languages. I had the cabby drive past and drop me a few streets beyond it, then walked around to the back to scope out the place for myself. Although the front of the building wasn't much different from its neighbors, the back of the property was secured on three sides by a high green brick wall topped with broken bottles. Not at all the sort of thing you'd expect of a legitimate fungus dealer. Score one for Grossman's story. As I inspected the wall, I got one of those feelings that a P.I. learns to respect, an itching at the back of my neck like I was being watched. I whipped my head around as quick as I could, but saw nothing behind me. But was that a splash, I heard? Someone vanishing around a corner? I crouched low and stayed still for a while, but nothing jumped me. Returning to the street, I approached the shop's front door just like an upstanding citizen. The door croaked a greeting as I approached, a habit of the local architecture I've always found disquieting, and as it opened itself I was immediately met by the proprietor, Mr. Agulma himself. He was just as plump and ugly as his photograph had promised, and his wide, shining eyes oozed suspicion. "'Can I help you?' he gurgled curtly. He spoke English with a German accent which did not endear him to me. It wasn't the Froggy's fault that the whole continent of Thugugurok had been German territory before the war, I told myself, but that accent still made me twitch. "'I'm looking for... something in the fungus line,' I temporized as I inspected the merchandise. The place looked not unlike a soggy version of an earth lumberyard, though all the planks and beams were actually slices of giant mushroom, and it smelled of loam rather than cut wood.' "'But I wasn't really paying any attention to the goods on display. "'I was looking behind between the stacks "'for signs of Agulma's other business.' "'Fungi we've got,' he replied, gesturing to indicate the whole shop. "'But his froggy eyes didn't budge from mine. "'It was as though he expected me to walk off "'with a whole bundle of toadstool two-by-fours "'the minute his back was turned. "'I'd like some, uh, some, uh, fancy trim work,' I said, "'naming something I didn't see that he might plausibly carry.' "'You know, a, a, a detail-moulding, like you might find in a nice house.' "'Nothing in stock, but we've got a catalogue. Special order. Can I see it?' He gave me a long, hard look, then muttered, "'Yeah, sure,' and ducked behind the counter. I heard the office door croak, which was interesting. I took advantage of his absence to peek a little more noisily into and behind his stock, but when the door croaked again, warning me of his return, I had learned nothing new.' Nor did I learn anything from perusing the catalogue, other than the difference between an architrave and a dental crown. I excused myself as quickly as I plausibly could. Ogolma seemed happy to see the back of me. The door croaked at me again as I left. Same to you, pal, I sneered to it under my breath. I looked around, all casual-like, before I hailed a cab back to my hotel, but though I didn't see anything out of the ordinary, I still couldn't shake the feeling I was being watched." Even though the sun barely peeps through Venus's perpetual clouds, for some reason the natives are strongly diurnal. So when I returned to Agulma's shop after dark, creeping through the moonless, starless blackness between the widely spaced worm lights, I could be pretty sure I wouldn't encounter anybody. But I still brought my gat, plus a few other things. The alley behind the shop was completely black, so I risked a quick flash of my cigarette lighter to make sure I was where I wanted to be before proceeding. Was that movement? "'in the murk beyond the lighter's reach? "'I doused the flame immediately and crouched stock still, "'holding my breath, gun in hand, ready for any attack. "'But the Venusian night stayed silent as ever, "'and after several long minutes I decided that what I'd thought I'd seen "'had been just a trick of the lighter's flickering flame. "'My hotel was pretty cheap.' cheaper than my expense report to Grossman would indicate anyway, but in this case that worked in my favor, because the rough woolen blanket they'd provided worked just fine to cover the broken glass at the top of the wall. Even if it got torn, I figured no one would ever notice. Who uses a blanket on Venus, anyway? I scampered up and over the rough green brick just as quick as if it were a wall in the Marine's obstacle course, then dropped to the ground on the other side without a sound. From my jacket pocket, I pulled a little gizmo like a perfume atomizer and squirted it at the door as I approached. The door relaxed, making no sound as I pushed it open a crack and squeezed inside, one of the many useful tricks I'd picked up during my sojourn as the only mostly honest cop in Cooksport. The office door got the same treatment. The croak I'd heard from that door on my earlier visit had been a significant clue. Living doors provided security as well as a polite greeting, and they weren't cheap, so the froggies generally only had them as outside doors. For a gulma to install one of them as interior office door indicated that there was something more than usually valuable inside. The office had no windows, so I used my lighter to take a good look around. It had the usual sort of things you'd expect to find in a fungus dealer's office papers, ashtray, spore casings, plus a large and very sophisticated safe. Bingo! The safe's nameplate read Schlosseride-Dotling-G-M-B-H in that almost illegible black letter type that Krauts are so fond of. It was a name I knew, quality German engineering nearly impossible to crack, and given the cost of shipping from Earth, far more expensive than any mere fungus dealer could possibly justify. But even a perfect safe is worthless if the owner doesn't lock it, and you'd be surprised how often that happens. I reached for the handle to check it, Suddenly I heard the gurgle of a Venusian squelch pistol being cocked. "'Hands up, Mr. Drayton,' came a familiar German-accented voice, "'and turn around slowly.' I did as I'd been ordered, the flickering lighter still in my hand. Gulma was standing inside the open door that I myself had silenced. Damn it! "'Shouldn't a good little froggy be in bed by now?' I said. "'I was told you'd try to steal my notes,' he replied, leveling the squelcher right at my family jewels.' His grin showed that he knew just how much this was going to hurt. "'What's that behind you?' I cried, and threw the lighter in his face. "'It might be the oldest trick in the book, but in this case I really had seen something moving behind him. "'The lighter smacked him right between his bulging eyes. "'It went out with a hiss, followed immediately by the liquid cough of the squelcher's discharge. "'But I had ducked to the side as soon as I tossed the lighter, and the shot only caught my sleeve.' I rolled under the desk, drew my gun, then crept out into the pitch blackness as silently as I could, making for the door, hoping to slip past Agulma in the dark. But though froggies don't have ears, they still have excellent hearing. Just before I got to the door I felt a warm, wet pressure behind my ear, the squelcher's business end. Goodbye, mister Drayton. The Squelcher gurgled, and suddenly a brilliant blinding flash of light stabbed me in the eyes. Agulma shrieked in pain, throwing the hand that held the squelcher across his eyes. My gun was still in my hand. I aimed at Ogulma's afterimage and fired. The muzzle flash showed Ogulma's startled face, and a second figure in the office, a skinny froggy with a fedora and a big camera like a reporter's. What the hell? Darkness returned with a thud. The sound of Ogulma's body hid in the floor. I leapt it where I thought the froggy with the fedora might be. Somewhat to my surprise I connected. We rolled over and over on the office floor, both grunting as we struggled, banging into furniture, waste baskets, icky fungus things, and Olguma's heavy, slimy body. Then there came a crunch of breaking glass and a gasp of froggy pain. That gave me the opening I needed. I shifted my grip, got his thumbs under his throat sack, and squeezed. Hard. He fought back, but Earth's gravity is higher than Venus's, and I work out at the boxing gym every week. Pretty soon he stopped fighting, his movements growing weaker and then stopping altogether." I kept the pressure up long enough to be sure he wasn't playing possum, but not long enough to kill him. By the time he came to, I'd handcuffed him to the safe, tickled the worm lights awake, and retrieved my gun. His pockets held a nasty little two-shot squelcher, some spare flashbulbs, and no identification. And though he was bleeding from a cut in his face where he'd rolled over and broken his own camera's flash unit, most of the green blood on him and on me was Ilgulma's. The fungus dealer was dead, shot through the throat. Whoever the froggy with the fedora was, he was tough and ruthless and good at his job. Despite my advantages in strength and weight, I'd only beaten him by luck. So I sat in the chair a good ten feet from him, with my fully loaded pistol trained on him and a gulma's squelcher ready in my other hand. Fedora's own squelcher was in my pocket. I didn't trust it. "'In any earth city the size of Cooksport, "'the sound of gunshots would have brought the police by now. "'But I'd been a Cooksport cop for almost five years, "'and I knew he wouldn't be disturbed until morning.' "'He groaned and sat up, or tried to, "'until the handcuffs holding him to the safe's thick steel foot stopped him. "'Then he looked around, spotted me, and immediately rose to a crouch, "'ready to spring if he got an opportunity. "'Settle back down, or I shoot,' I said conversationally. "'He settled.' "'but on the floor, facing me with his hands behind him, "'which showed that he understood English "'and that he wasn't dumb. "'Who are you?' "'My name is not important. "'His English was good for a froggy "'with no regional accent I could detect. "'Who sent you?' "'Silence. "'Why were you following me?' "'Silence. "'I stood up, took one step closer to him, "'and drew back the hammer on my revolver. "'I find that the click it makes is extremely persuasive.' Who sent you, and why were you following me? I'll give him credit. He held his silence right up until I put the barrel between his froggy eyes and started to squeeze the trigger. I don't know who hired me, he spat. The money came through a blind drop. I stepped back, still keeping the gun on him. What was the job? To get pictures of your death. Then explained why the camera had flashed just as Ilgulma was about to pull the trigger, and strongly hinted at the employer. You were a bit premature. I didn't know it would be so bright. If Froggy's had teeth, he would have been gritting them. But something didn't quite fit. How did you know Ogulma would show up and try to kill me? He smiled, and it was an ugly thing. I told him to. Ogulma had said something along those lines. You told him I'd try to steal something of his. What was it? He didn't say anything, but his eyes flickered fractionally in the direction of the safe. So the ulka's in the safe? I probed. At that, he blinked. Ulka? Not even Ogulma's stupid enough to sell ulka here. This is Gurundi territory. Curiouser and curiouser. So what's in the safe that's so important Ogulma would risk killing a human over it? Humans and froggies in Cooksport had separate but equal judicial systems. For a froggy to kill a human was a maximum crime under froggy law. He'd have to be truly desperate to even consider such a thing. Notes. What kind of notes? I wasn't told. His throat sack pulsed and slowly deflated, a froggy shrug. He really didn't know. Whatever those notes are, I mused, your employer knew that if Ogulma thought I was trying to steal them, he'd kill me. So he told you to warn a I was coming to do exactly that and then follow me to photograph the hit. Pretty smart for a human. I felt like I had all the pieces, but the puzzle still wasn't fitting together. You're pretty good yourself. So if you ever it was wanted pictures of me dead, why didn't he just have you kill me? Again the ugly grin. Look behind you. It might be the oldest trick in the book, and I'd just used it myself, but even so I nearly fell for it. I started to look, then immediately caught myself and turned back. Somehow he'd managed to work one hand out of the cuffs while they were behind his back. He was leaping right at me, fearless, the handcuffs swinging toward my face and the other hand reaching for my gun. But even though my head had started to turn, the gun hadn't. I pulled the trigger right before he slammed into me. He was still trying to claw my eyes out when he died. So there I was, with two dead froggies, a ruined suit, and a safe full of secrets. I straightened the place up a bit while I thought about what to do next. Even though the cops wouldn't come by until business hours, whoever had hired Fedora Guy, and I had a very good idea who that might have been, was extremely interested in the contents of Ogulma's safe, and certainly had resources of his own. I suspected he'd find out what had happened and try for the safe himself right away. And if he did and if I could catch him in the act, that would be a very interesting conversation. I squeezed myself between two file cabinets and waited in the dark. I didn't have long to wait. It was less than an hour later when the door croaked. Apparently it had recovered from the Mickey I'd slipped it, and a little guy in a trench coat and slouch hat entered carrying a pocket worm light. The light illuminated what he was looking at, not him, so I couldn't see his face, but he was much shorter than the gross man I'd expected. I took a firmer grip on my pistol and waited to see what he'd do. He looked around the place a bit, obviously unnerved by the blood and the two bodies, but as soon as he saw the safe he went right to it. He knelt down in front of it, pulled a folded paper from his pocket, and dialed in the combination. The click of the latch was followed by another click, this one from my revolver. "'Okay, bud,' I said. "'Hands up and turn around slowly. "'Leave this safe open.' "'He did as he was told. "'And I got a surprise. "'It was Lily, Grossman's secretary. "'Mr. Drayton,' she gasped. "'You're alive!' "'Her relief was palpable. "'No thanks to your employer. "'He tried to have me killed. "'Twice,' I gestured to the two bodies. "'My father would never do such a thing,' she protested. "'Father?' "'I took another look at the girl's face.' No wonder I'd been attracted, despite my reluctance to rob the cradle. She looked a hell of a lot like her mother had at her age. Same face, same figure, same honey blonde hair, same blue eyes. Blue eyes. The same as mine. Grossman's eyes were brown. What's your birthdate, I snapped, using the cop voice that compels an immediate answer? A February 16, 1917. Subtract nine months. Lugwanda Bay, give or take a week. Holy cow, I muttered. This changed everything. Listen, kid, I said, holstering my pistol, you seem like a nice girl, and this is a very nasty business. You need to get the hell out right away, or you're going to get hurt. Pack one bag, take a ferry to Nuglunda or a zep to Wakanuke, change your name, start a new life, I can front you some cash if you need it. Just go. And go now. I won't do that. She was strong-willed and defiant, just like her mom. And her real dad, come to think of it. "'I'm sure this is all some kind of mix-up.' "'She planted her feet and bunched her hands into fists. "'I'd never betray my father like that.' "'This little twist made a difficult situation even stickier. "'If Lily wouldn't go, then I couldn't sic the cops on Grossman without hurting her. "'She was an accomplice, and besides, she clearly idolized the man, "'which meant that if I just shot Grossman, it would hurt her even more.' Telling her he wasn't her real dad was also unlikely to fly. I had to come up with some other way to deal with him. What did he send you here to get? I asked her. More information couldn't hurt and might help. She handed me the paper. It had Ogluma's address, the safe combination, and the word Achilles. I was to collect everything from the safe with this word on it. There was one file folder with that label, a fat one. Flipping through it revealed a lot of handwritten notes it would take a while to sort out. "'I thought for a moment. "'Okay, tell you what. "'Go back to Grossman and tell him the combination didn't work. "'You saw the two bodies, but you didn't see me, and you didn't get anything. "'I'll take this information, and I'll 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 try to find some way to fix the situation without hurting your father.' "'I did not clarify who I meant by that last. "'Will you do that for me?' "'She frowned, but after a moment she nodded. "'All right.' I knew I was using her affection for me to manipulate her. I felt like a heel, but it might just keep her alive and out of trouble. You're a good kid, I said, and I gave her a quick kiss on the forehead. Her smile broke my heart for the second time in two days. Now you run home. I'll find some way to let you know what's going on, and... I closed my eyes and swallowed. And don't tell your mother you saw me, okay? Okay. She took one long, lingering look over her shoulder at me before leaving. I sat in Algoma's blood-spattered desk chair for a moment after she left. "'Oh, boy,' I said with my aching head and my hands. "'Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy.' Then I hauled myself to my feet and got back to work. With the safe open, all it took was a screwdriver to change the combination. I used my pocket knife to change it to some random number, closed the door, and spun the wheel. Now no one would be able to get it open without high explosives, safe-cracking expertise, or both. That would buy me some time.' I touched my hat-brim to the two dead froggies. Nice doing business with you, gents. Then I tucked the file folder under my arm and headed out the way I'd come in. The damn door crooked at me on the way out, so I shot it. First thing the next morning I had the hotel call a tailor to measure me for a new suit. Nothing too fancy, but I sprung for Venusian silk. When would I ever have a better opportunity? Besides, it was on Grossman's nickel. After the tailor left, I ordered room service, sat in my skivvies on the bed, and read through Ogulma's notes. They weren't in code, but they were dense and elliptical, and Ogulma's writing wasn't tidy. A lot of it was in Venusian squiggles, and some of the rest was in German, but between the English and what little I remembered of the German, I managed to piece the story together. No wonder Grossman had sent his own daughter to get these notes, and no wonder Ogulma had risked the maximum penalty to keep them murder, fraud, smuggling, war crimes even. Grossman was worse than I'd thought, and I had to find a way to take him down while keeping Lily and Maria out of it. I put on a shirt and slacks and went out to do what I do. "'Nasty piece of work,' I said as I played my pocket-worm light over the destructor's glass casing. I'm not sure whether I was referring to the destructor or Grossman." i'd walked in the tradesman's entrance at superior bold as you please slipped down to the work floor while the guard's back was turned and made my way to the basement with the thundering silk mill's dark corners pounding noise and chemical stink to hide my passage the biotic destructor was right where agulma's notes had said it would be twenty glass carboys full of an evil-looking dark green sludge all connected to their sonic detonators in each other by wires and tubes it was a venusian invention but it was fritz who had used it on our doughboys back in the war we'd called them mold bombs and now they were prohibited by the geneva conventions they were extremely touchy when i served a stint in the ordnance division our co had ordered us not to attempt to disarm or move one if we should come across it in the field I didn't know for sure why Grossman had hired O'Gulman to use his German contacts and biotics expertise to set up a mold bomb under his own factory, but I had my suspicions. In any case, simple possession of just one of these carboys would be enough to put him in jail for the rest of his life, and O'Gulman's notes would tie them to Grossman so tightly even a Cooksport lawyer couldn't get him loose. But I couldn't send him to jail without involving Lily." I sat on the filthy basement floor, staring at the evil thing and considering my options. None of them was very good. Three days later I was looking at myself in the wardrobe mirror, admiring my new Venusian silk suit. It was comfortable, stylish, cool, and made me look great. I'll give the froggies this. Cooksport tailors are the best on three planets. They work fast and turn out an excellent product. He'd even thrown in a matching hat, which also suited me perfectly. Only the dark circles under my eyes spoiled the effect. I hadn't managed more than two or three hours' sleep at a snatch since landing on Venus, but I'd done everything I could to set my plan in motion, and now it was time for the final act. Any delay would only increase the risk of something going wrong. I left the key in the room. One way or another, I wouldn't be coming back. But before I departed the hotel, I made three calls from the payphone in the lobby. Grossman was inspecting his own reflection in the office window as I entered. With the lights on inside and the night so black outside, the glass made a perfect mirror. Not even the plant, which was, of course, visible from Grossman's office, showed any lights. With business so low, no one was working the third shift. Nice suit, he said, without turning around. His reflected eyes met mine without apparent fear. You can put the gun away. It's just insurance, I said. I didn't lower it. "'I'm not going to try to jump you. "'I'm an old man, Mr. Drayton. "'I get what I want with money and power. "'And I understand from your telephone call "'that you have something I want.' "'I do. "'I set down my suitcase, opened it left-handed, "'and pulled out Ogulma's file folder. "'Does the name Achilles ring a bell?' "'At that he did turn around, "'though his face showed neither surprise nor concern, "'just a cold disdain. "'I suspected that item was what you were referring to.' "'How did you get it? "'Did you seduce Lily the way you did Maria?' "'My face must have shown my reaction, because he continued, "'Oh, yes, Mr. Drayton, I know all about La Guanta Bay. "'And despite that, you hired me for this job. "'I hired you because of that. "'Remember how I told you I needed someone of your unique qualities? "'I wasn't lying. "'I needed somebody with bravery, wit, but not too much wit.' and keen investigative skills because no one else would put himself in front of Agulma's sculpture for me. And also I needed someone I wouldn't mind seeing dead. You fit the bill for all of those criteria. Something about the way he said it reminded me of his priorities. Money over family, over relationships, over everything. So my death wasn't the main point of the plan. (laughs) Only a delightful side effect. "'He chuckled. "'The point of the plan was to photograph Mr. Ogulma "'in the process of committing the crime. "'You do recall what the penalty is for an Aboriginal "'who kills a human, don't you? Uh, "'Death by desiccation,' he held up one finger, "'and destruction of the murderer's property. "'Of course. "'I've been so stupid to overlook that part. "'It was the linchpin of the entire scheme, "'which gets rid of the safe and any other evidence "'connecting the destructor to you. "'Very clever.' "'But your plan didn't quite work out.' "'He shrugged one silk-covered shoulder. "'It seems to have worked out well enough in the end. "'With Mr. Ogulma dead, I only need to obtain and destroy his notes, "'and now you have brought them to me. "'I assume you will require some form of payment in exchange for them?' "'Yes. Three things. Name them. "'Item one. Money.' payment of my fee in cash, including the completion bonus, and my expenses, which were rather larger than I'd anticipated. I pulled a paper from my suitcase and skimmed it across the desk at him. He picked up the paper, noted the bottom line, unlocked a file drawer, and tossed me a bundle of bills. I caught it left-handed and put it in my pocket without looking. "'Don't you want to count it?' he asked. "'I trust you when it comes to money.' "'Item two, information. Why blow up your own factory?' "'For the insurance, of course. I'm surprised we even have to ask. "'I can read the writing on the wall as well as anyone. The age of balloons is over. "'If I destroy the plant now, while it's still a going concern, "'the payout will be more than enough to keep me and mine in style for the rest of our lives. "'Won't the insurance company find the explosion a little suspicious?' "'Grossman chuckled again. You underestimate me, Mr. Drayton.' "'With a little help from my friends in the police department—you may know some of them— "'I've planted evidence tying the biotic destructor to the Silk Workers' Union, "'which not only directs suspicion away from me, "'but under local law it allows me to claim the union's pension fund as damages.' "'He raised an eyebrow. "'Is that information sufficient payment for your item number two? "'It is. "'I'm impressed. "'Not only do you put your own workers out of a job, you steal their pensions.' "'Thank you, Mr. Drayton.' "'I've always suspected we have more in common than our taste in women. "'Which brings us to item three. "'I tightened my grip on the pistol. "'Maria.' "'Really, Mr. Drayton?' "'He seemed disappointed. "'After all these years?' "'That item is non-negotiable. "'Divorce her or I take Ogulma's notes to the police. "'No, the union.' "'What makes you think she still wants you?' "'I only hope that she does.' but even if she doesn't, at least this way she's out from under your thumb. His brown eyes held mine for a long, considering moment. Then he nodded. Done. You can have her. I'll file the papers with my lawyer in the morning. I blinked. I didn't expect it to be that easy. Frankly, I still didn't believe it. Even the shiniest toy palls with age. I'll even buy you a ticket to California for her. I didn't mention that I'd already included her ticket and a few other things in my heavily padded expense report. So, may I have the file now? I handed it over. But there was a fourth item, which I hadn't mentioned until now, because if I called too much attention to it, he might not say what I needed him to say. Just one more thing. How could you send your own daughter to do your dirty work for you? He didn't look up from flipping through the papers. "'Don't be disingenuous, Mr. Drayton.' I know whose daughter she really is. Surely you don't think I'd send my own flesh and blood into such a dangerous situation? You're even colder than I thought. Thank you for the compliment, Mr. Drayton. He closed the file folder, and now he did look up. I trust you can find your own way out? I have important business to attend to. Of course. I tip my new silk hat. It's been a pleasure doing business with you. I closed the door without any appearance of undue haste, then rushed as fast as I could down the stairs to the reception area, where I found Lily crying at the front desk, the intercom's green light reflecting off her beautiful tear-streaked face. She'd heard the truth, just as I'd promised her in my second phone call. "'I'm sorry you had to get the news this way,' I said, "'but I knew you wouldn't believe it if he didn't hear it from his own mouth.' "'He won't really give her up?' she sobbed. "'He'll just have you killed. I'm sure that's his plan.' "'I took her hand, pulled her toward the front doors. "'But I know his priorities, money over family. "'Now that the evidence is in his hands, "'he'll want to blow up the plant right away. "'Come on, move!' "'She stumbled along behind me, not resisting me, "'but not really cooperating either. "'I think she was still in shock from the news. "'Why do we have to leave?' "'The bomb has a sonic detonator,' I said as I hustled her out the front door and down the walkway to the street where the cab I'd come in waited. "'A certain frequency of whistle sets it off. It has a range of up to a mile. I don't understand.' we just reached the cab when a strange high-pitched sound caught our ears and made us both look back. A moment later came a horrible squelching bang, and the illuminated window of Grossman's office was suddenly splattered with green—green green with streaks of red.' The green immediately began to spread, oozing through the cracks the explosion had made in the office windows, creeping over the outside surface of the building. Inside I knew it would be even worse, all that shining aluminum and steel vanishing under a rapidly spreading carpet of highly corrosive mold. And when it did to human flesh and bone, well, it was a crime. Come on, I said, and hustled Lily up into the cab's howdah. I'd moved just one of the cowboys from the factory basement into Grossman's office, disconnecting the detonators from the others. I'd hoped it would destroy only the office block, leaving the plant intact. At least then the workers would still have their jobs, for a few more years at least, and their pensions after that, but I couldn't be sure, so I wanted to get as far away as possible, as quickly as possible. Moving the cowboy hadn't been easy or safe, but it wasn't the first time I'd disobeyed my CO's orders, and it probably wouldn't be the last." "'Take us to the port,' I told the cabbie. "'We have an airliner to catch.' When I saw Maria in the terminal bar, the tension that had been gripping my temples eased and then immediately returned even stronger. I'd been too chicken to phone her directly. Instead, I'd called an old mutual friend and asked her to pass a message. I'd been worried she wouldn't follow through or that the message wouldn't reach Maria in time or that she'd get the message and pass on it. But she was here sitting on a bar stool, clad all in black silk, with those magnificent legs crossed at the ankle, smoking a cigarette, staring off into space, just waiting. Waiting for me at the bar, the way we used to do for each other back in happier times. But when she heard what I had to say, she'd probably want to kill me. As we approached, Lily took away any opportunity I might have had to break the news gently. As soon as she saw Maria, she ran toward her, sobbing over and over, Teddy's dead!' Maria took the girl into her arms and held her tight. It made my heart ache remembering those arms around my own shoulders, but I held back to give the two of them a moment together. After a time, Maria raised her head from her daughter's shoulder and looked me right in the eye. She was dry-eyed. "'Mike,' she said. Just that, just my name, even as she patted her baby girl on the back. "'Maria,' I replied in kind. "'It's been a long time.' "'Yes, it has.' She squeezed Lily again, gave her a silk handkerchief from her purse, and led her to a booth. They sat on one side, the daughter sobbing with her head on her arms, the mother stroking her back. I sat opposite them, noting how similar and yet how different they were. Maria ordered gin and tonics for both of us, our favorite tipple back when, and ginger ale for the girl. How did it happen? Maria asked me after the waiter left. She didn't look happy, but she wasn't devastated either, just subdued. The G&T sat in front of me like an accusation. I folded my hands on the worn formica and composed my thoughts before proceeding. "'Grossman was planning to destroy the factory for the insurance money,' I explained. "'I caught him at it, but he went ahead with his plan anyway. There was an accident with the bomb, and he was killed. The office block is a total loss, I'm sure. The plant might be okay. Was there anything important that I'd left out? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about your husband.' "'She didn't even acknowledge my pathetic attempt at solace. "'It isn't just a coincidence that you're here,' she said. "'No, it isn't. "'He brought me here as part of his plan. "'He was hoping to kill me as well as blow up the plant, but I got away. "'I was trying to tell the truth, "'but in a way that wouldn't hurt anyone more than necessary, "'and I was failing miserably on both counts. "'Oh, and one other thing. "'Before he died, he admitted in Lily's hearing that he isn't her real father.' Lily raised her head from her arms. There was mascara all over the sleeve of her white silk jacket. She looked at her mother accusingly. Why didn't you tell me? Maria's face changed completely as she turned to her daughter, showing the deep, unbending love she'd once given to me. I couldn't, darling. I couldn't hurt you like that. If you'd known, you would have had to choose all day, every day. "'Do you pretend a love you don't feel "'and maintain the luxurious lifestyle "'to which you have become accustomed? "'Or do you admit your true feelings "'and get thrown back into the swamp "'with the other little fish, "'with the enmity of one of Crooksport's richest "'and most powerful men "'as an additional weight around your neck?' "'She returned her attention to me, "'her expression going back to neutral. "'I would never wish that choice on anyone.' "'You don't have to choose any more,' I told her, and reached into my jacket pocket. I got us tickets to L.A. on the San Pablo, leaving tonight. I laid the envelope on the table, pushed it toward her. It's not first-class accommodations, but I got us a family suite, with two bedrooms, for the three of us. A real family, finally, after all these years. Maria's face softened into the one I remembered. A little older, a little wearier, but still as full of hope and love as the one I'd known before the war and then it hardened again, and she slid the envelope back to my side of the table. I made my choice twenty years ago, Mike, she said, and took a sip of her G&T. Now I'm a society matron. I have responsibilities. I can't just run away for love. She looked down into her drink. Someone has to keep Superior Silk running for another few years at least, or this whole town will fall right into the swamp. Who cares? "'I care, Mike. The workers, the Aboriginals need us. We've taken so much from them. I couldn't just abandon them?' "'You don't have to do this. I don't know how to be a detective's wife,' she snapped. "'I can't make a happy home on just sunshine and oranges.' Then she seemed to gather herself up and reached out and took my hand. "'I'm sorry, Mike,' she said with a sweet, sad smile that showed she really meant it. "'I'm too set in my ways to change now.' Just leave me here with my mansion and my swimming pool and my million-dollar life insurance payout. I'll struggle through. I picked up my G&T, tilted it back and forth, watched the way the alcohol beaded on the inside of the glass. Then I set it down. What about Lily? I asked. They both looked at me, both of their eyes so blue. It's not too late for her, I went on. Let me take her out of this overcast, overheated swamp, and back to L.A., where it's sunny and clement all year round. I can't offer her a mansion, but I make a decent living. I turned to my daughter, and I could use a good secretary. Lily looked at her mother. Her mother looked back. The connection that I saw pass between them was something I have never felt in my whole life, not with a woman, not with my own mother or father, not even with my wartime buddies. And Maria nodded. "'Now boarding!' came the amplified voice of the terminal announcer, echoing across the terminal's chip terrazzo. "'The A.S. San Pablo for Los Angeles. All aboard!' The two women hugged and kissed and promised to write, while I paid the tab, gathered up my suitcase, and marveled at what I'd seen pass between them. It was a moment of shared sacrifice, mutual respect, and deep trust that would tear my cynical heart apart like a two-stroke lawnmower trying to run on high-test aviation fuel. And I hoped to God that living with Lily would teach me how to trust like that. Maria let go of her daughter and finally gave me a hug. "'If you let anything happen to her,' she whispered in my ear, "'I'll kill you.' "'I'll do my best,' I murmured back. "'That's what I'm afraid of.' and she let me go, except for one hand, and continued in a normal voice. "'Take good care of my daughter, Mike.' "'She's my daughter, too.' "'All aboard!' repeated the announcer, and we skedaddled. I looked back one last time as we walked away, but she was already gone. It was still night when the airliner broke through the clouds, and for the first time in weeks I saw the stars, clean and bright and pure, a gleaming white pinprick for every regret in my life and then the liner passed out of Venus's shadow and they faded away, replaced by the pure eternal blue of the sky between planets. This has been The End of the Silk Road by David D. Levine, read by the author. Please check my website at (laughs) daviddlevine.com.
1: There you go, don't again. Copyright is David. David, thank you so... Thank you so much. On two accounts, an amazing story and an amazing narration. Thank you so much. At the end as well today, when we kind of break, what I'm going to do at the end, I'm going to tell you a few things, because I don't want to spoil the day's show, rabbit on about. You know, me, low, me, uh, me high, low carbs, all that nonsense, you know what I mean? I'm going to tell you a little bit more of what, what I'm getting into. Because, oh, I'm, I'm getting... Oh, oh. Oh, is that, is that me parcel getting delivered? I'm getting well into the murky depths of fermented veg. Hmm, I will tell you more. Hang in there. Let's jump in then, anyways, to Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi himself. He's doing a little commentary on Alien. And Mark is, like you say, he was a gentleman that raised all that amount, massive amount on Kickstarter. I'll give you a little bio on Mark, just in case you're you know, you, you kind of... New to Mark. I mean, he's been a great supporter of Starship. So, you know, once in a while we get these commentaries, and they're just what I love about them is it's like first hand, man. Mark's there. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's what Mark's talked about. He's 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 personally been in contact with, and I kind of touch these greats if you if you like. And it's it's really nice to kind of get his views because he's he's on the inside, if you know what I mean. Mark is, or has written and produced hundreds of hours of TV series, pilots and feature films for most of the major studios and networks, including Paramount, Universal, Disney, Sony, Columbia, TriStar, MGM, Warner's, Castle Rock, New Line, all oh, the list goes on and on. He's had He's been involved with Star Trek, The Next Generation, Sliders, Babylon 5, Deep Space Nine, Friday the 13th, the series Smurfs, yes, Smurfs, He-Man, Super Friends, and the Real Ghostbusters, amongst many others. He's been a award- he's been nominated for the Hugo Award, American Book Award, Humanities Prize, Nebula Award, Diane Thomas Award. He's just been, you know what I mean? There's there's just so much for Mark. He said this over a short bio, and it's fascinating. It's just there's so much he's done. You can learn more about Mark. I'll pop the link on. Go over to Mark's site if you want, on Mark's Facebook and uh, Twitter page as well. It's all there. What a great, you know what I mean, to be that close to how it, the the pulse of, you know, science fiction. So, Mark. Hi guys, it's Mark Zickory, Mr.
3: Sci Fi, also known as Mark Zickry of Space Command. And if you're new to the Mr. Sci Fi channel, I'm a writer. Oh, whose credits include The Twilight Zone Companion, Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, Sliders, on and on and on, Smurfs, He-Man, Super Friends, you name it. You can look me up on Google, Wikipedia, of IMDB Pro, etc. The whole point of all of that being that I have a vast experience in science fiction, and today we are going to talk about Alien Covenant. There probably will be some spoilers. <laughs> and also the history, the untold history of Alien, because I have personal experience in uh, the development of this story and how it came to be. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the journey of Alien because it's, uh, of course, one of the most amazing science fiction franchises in movie history. Very interesting journey. And uh, well, let's just talk about it for a few minutes. And I saw the movie yesterday, and it's a very fun movie. Uh, Ridley Scott is certainly an incredibly talented director. And um, uh, it's, it's well worth seeing, but it's a uh, goofy, goofy movie in its way. Uh, less goofy than Prometheus, of course. But still, uh, it has many flaws, as well as some, some interesting strengths. Uh, so, but let me, let me go way back to the beginning of Alien, because <clears throat> for those of us seeing it now who weren't there at the beginning, the movie, of course, came out in 1979, so if you're uh, not a middle-aged or older person, you will not have experienced it from the beginning. And at the beginning, it was an astonishing Astonishing, revelatory film unlike anything that had gone before and there were two ways in which this was the case and let me let me just get into that and I'll, I'll talk about a, a little bit about my personal history with Alien so um, so here we go so imagine if you will <laughs> as Rod used to say uh, that you're a teenager and it's the 1970s and you're um, invited because you hang out with sort of an artsy crowd and you're into science fiction Uh, this was during the early 70s, and so it was still the last gasp of the counterculture and the hippie era and all of that. And I was invited to uh, debut party for a new counterculture newspaper. Uh, there were there was there were a number of free papers that were given out across the country. One of them was the Free Press, uh, the Los Angeles Free Press, which was a, a very renowned culture, culture, countercultural newspaper. <clears throat> and so there was a uh, another alternative paper that had just debuted as its competitor. And there was a uh, and so I was invited to the party. Uh, of the opening and it was held in a restaurant and there were these benches and we were all sitting at benches and tables and having beverages and whatever food they put out. And on my right, I was uh, maybe 15, maybe something like that. On my right, there was a, you know, 300 pound hell's angel with a long knife on his belt, really and a big beard, really a scary looking guy. And uh, on my left there was a milder-looking person, and uh, so I decided to talk to the milder-looking person. I think this is probably soon after Altamont, the uh, the very famous Rolling Stones concert where uh, the Hell's Angels had been hired as security, and they had ended up knifing somebody. And so, so sitting next to a Hell's Angel guy with a long knife was uh, was a little bit scary. And so. And, uh, though, though, not, not hugely. I mean, it was, you know, he was at a party. I didn't expect anything was going to happen, but there was a nicer looking guy on my left. So I thought, okay, I'll talk to the nicer looking guy on my left who was, who had a beard as well and, and shaggy, slightly longish hair. And he, he had a nice smile on his face. He seemed like a nice guy. So I started talking to him. Turned out he, his name was Ron Cobb. Now Ron Cobb, I knew, already back then, as an amazing, amazing political cartoonist. Uh, he'd been, I think he'd been doing stuff for the Free Press, but now he's also doing stuff for this other paper. And uh, the th- thing that was fascinating about Ron, as well as, Ron Cobb as well as the fact that his po- political cartoons were great, and, I mean, he, had, he did one of a man wandering over a post-apocalyptic landscape, carrying a television set, looking for an, uh, looking for a, for a, an electrical outlet, and uh, you know, things like that. It was very, very funny, very pithy. And, uh, but also, something that was very distinctive about his political cartoons was they, all, they often had a science fictional bent. And he would draw aliens, and he would draw spaceships and robots, and they always looked phenomenal. Really, really cool. And I loved his work. And, uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, slightly later, he would actually design uh, some of the things in Star Wars, uh, the uh, the Hammerhead Alien was one of his designs, based on one of his political cartoons, and also the Doobak, the uh, the Stormtrooper on the on the giant lizard. That was another one of his designs, and uh, but this was before all of that, and um, so I started talking to him, and we hit it off, and he took me back to his place to show me some of his artwork, and and there along the baseboard of his apartment, just on the carpet. Against the wall, laid laid, against, laid on the floor against the wall, were ten paintings. And he had just been hired to do ten concept paintings. He was hired for a thousand dollars to do ten original. I believe they were oils, and um, and uh, concept paintings for this new movie that, that these two guys had written this script. and They were trying to sell it, and he was hired as a as a concept artist because one of them, uh, one of them had. Um, uh co co-written and, and starred in a little science fiction film and ron cobb had become his friend and they needed a design a design for a spaceship and cobb had just drawn it on a napkin and said here how about this and my friend greg Jean, who i didn't know at that time but who i later knew he built the uh, the mothership in close encounters and the city in blade runner which i've got part of thanks to thanks to uh thanks to greg he built that ship and that was a movie called dark star <clears throat> and the writer was a young man named Dan O'Bannon and he and Ron Shusett who was the brother of my friend Gary Shusett who again I didn't know at that point but later know um, they had come up with a movie an idea for a movie and it was called Alien and so that night before the movie sold I went in and I saw those 10 concept paintings that Ron Cobb had done to help sell Alien and they were spectacular just gorgeous amazing and nowadays you can go online thanks to the wonderful internet and you can actually see <clears throat> some of those paintings and they were very very different from what alien would ultimately look like at least the alien itself but they were evocative they were astonishing they were gorgeous they were unlike anything i'd ever seen and uh, and this began a, a friendship with, with ron cobb and um and so that was the beginning of alien and the beginning of my friendship with cobb and where it led was that, that Dan O'Bannon ultimately sold Alien and also on the strength of that he, uh, he was hired to do um, a, a movie called Dune and Alejandro Hodorowsky uh, who had, had had done a lot of very strange, freaky movies hired Dan O'Bannon to work on the adaptation of Dune and brought him over to uh, to Spain and, uh, uh, and they uh, started working on Dune now Cobb was part of that and also, through that, H.R. Giger came into that project and ultimately that movie didn't get made. There's a wonderful documentary on, on, the, on the, that version of Dune, which would have been quite amazing. And there were a number of other artists who were brought aboard that project, um, uh, Mobius and uh, um, Chris Foss, another science fiction artist. And so ultimately, by then, Alien had sold to uh, and Walter Hill and David Guiler were it as producers. And and so they and, and there were several fascinating things about Alien that uh, Ron Shusett and Dan O'Bannon cooked up. And, Dan, and and Dan O'Bannon, the you know, the film that Dan O'Bannon had first met Ron Cobb on was Dark Star. And Dark Star is a wonderfully funny science fiction film and it's about um, uh, a crew on a ship that goes around blowing up planets. And at one point in that film, uh, there's a beach ball. Uh, alien with with Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, hands, and this was this was a sequence shot to expand the film when it sold, and as a commercial film and they needed to pad it out, and it's about this alien getting loose on that f- on that ship, and and and, and the and, and the crew having to hunt it down and try and try to kill it or try to stop it, and the, the germ of that became Alien because it was, because that was done for comedic effect, but Dan O'Bannon started thinking about well what would happen if it wasn't comedic, and there were a number of science fiction stories that were an influence on this. There was um, a film, a, a sort of hokey film from the 50s called It, the Creature from Beyond Space. There was a, a, a story by um, A.E. Van Vogt, a, a, a novel called Voyage of the Space Beagle. All sorts of odds and ends. Dan O'Bannon was a huge science fiction nerd. and uh, But ultimately, he and Ron Shusett cooked up Alien. And But the brilliant idea they came up with was The question always is, what's scary? What haven't we seen before? Because horror has been done and done and done and done. And to actually scare an audience with something fresh is very, very difficult. And they looked to the animal kingdom for their creature. And they thought, okay, well, that's what's really scary? And in the insect world, of course, there there are insects that incubate their young in other insects. And then they burst out. And that was a very, very scary idea that had never been done in film anywhere, ever. So, okay, so here's Dan O'Bannon working on Dune. Dune collapses and doesn't get made, but by then Ridley Scott has come aboard Alien. <clears throat> now Ridley Scott had come out of advertising. He 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 was a really talented artist in his own right. He could draw. He could he had a great visual imagination, and he um he had, he and so he came aboard. Alien, and he started drawing storyboards, his own storyboards of Alien. And when the studio saw the amazing storyboards he was doing, they doubled the, bu- the budget. They just said, "This is going to be a great film." And um, but meantime, Dan O'Bannon was brought back onto Alien, and he had a recommendation for all of these artists that he'd been working with, and he brought that to Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott, this is all coming off Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, and Ridley Scott saw these artists, and of course, knew they were spectacular. But the one thing, again, that was revolutionary about Alien was that every film that had gone before, every film and TV show in in the science fiction realm that had gone before, the art department worked on every aspect of the, the visuals. So, for instance, on Star Trek, the same art department designing... The, the, the Enterprise uh, uniforms and ships and, and hand weapons. Those might be designed by different individuals, but they were the same art team. So, so for instance, the Klingon ship and, you know, and the Klingon uniforms are going to be similar In design aesthetic to the the Enterprise crew and the Enterprise um, ship, you know, the the uniforms in the ship, because it's the same aesthetic and the same team. And they might try for something that looks somewhat different, and they did. The Klingon ship is a great design, as is the Enterprise, but they're still sort of in the same aesthetic universe. But with Alien, the brilliant idea, the brilliant, brilliant idea was that they would have a completely different artist and aesthetic working on the Alien stuff. From the artists working on the human stuff, so Ron Cobb was heading up design of the Nostromo and the the, the human ship and and so it 's Chris Foss and Mobius and and, and and Cobb working on all of the human things, the spacesuits, etc and then it was. H.R. Giger, the brilliant and crazy Swiss artist H.R. Giger working to design the alien and the alien ship because of course he was doing very creepy sexualized biomechanical designs in his paintings and his drawings very disturbing and so he brought that all to Alien and so when you saw Alien you saw something that was completely unlike anything you'd ever seen before in a film. And the, and the fact that the, everything on the human side had one design aesthetic and on the alien side had a totally different and very disturbing aesthetic made you feel that you were truly going into an alien place, somewhere you'd never been before. And that was terrific. So, So let me take you back to 1979 and talk about what alien was like to see where there was no no knowledge of it beforehand because although I'd met Ron Cobb and seen those original original paintings of Alien, I hadn't read the script, I hadn't been in on the shooting of the movie. I did not know what the story was. And because I didn't know Dan O'Bannon. Uh, and so and by then of course Ron Cobb had gone on and was working on Star Wars and so forth. So I saw the painting he did for John Milius that was of a of an it, John Milius had said he wanted a painting that looked like a National Geographic photograph of an alien planet, an alien terrain. So Cobb had done this amazing painting of, an, a, of an, sort of an alien Arab kind of guy, all, all, all wreathed in in, in in robes, sitting on top of a giant lizard on a desert landscape. And it was a superb painting. And then George Lucas saw that painting, As Milius and all these people knew each other, Spielberg and, and so forth, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. They were all, all pals and, and hung out, George Lucas. And um, uh, so, so George Lucas saw that painting, and said, okay, well, I want to use that in Star Wars, which he did. And he used the hammerhead in uh, The Alien, the Cobb designed in, in the cantina scene. But anyway, back to Alien. So, okay, so, Alien comes out... Well, Star Wars comes out in 1977. And, of course, it's a uh, it's a change in everything. Everything changes then. Because they, the studios now see that they can do a very different kind of science fiction movie that will appeal to the masses. 2001 had been a hit, but it had been sort of a one-off. You weren't, it, you weren't going to see... Um, a lot of film. It wasn't a popular entertainment. It was a, it was a challenging film and sort of an art film, even though it was expensive. And, um, but but Star Wars, they said, okay, every studio wanted a Star Wars. Then, so Paramount started putting into production Star Trek The Motion Picture and, of course, 20th Century Fox. Well, when Ridley Scott saw Star Wars, he realized it was a whole different thing. And he also saw um, 2001, and these were huge influences on him. And uh, so instead of doing Tristan and Isolde, which was the film he was working on after The Duelists, his first feature, he switched over to Alien. So, so okay, so Alien goes into production. And it's... Uh, and so the, they rolled it out before it came out in theaters. They decided to roll it out at the World Science Fiction Convention, just like the, the World Science Fiction Convention, just like Gene Roddenberry had showed, shown the pilot of Star Trek before it aired at the World Science Fiction Convention to get the buzz going among science fiction fans. That's what they did with uh, Alien. So they took us all to a big uh, auditorium theater, huge, and they screened Alien. Now there was no knowledge of what this film was going to be. Nothing. So none of us were prepared for what we were going to see. So it was one of the scariest films I ever saw in my life because, first of all, it wasn't... In the main, the, the tropes of, of science fiction films as we were used to them. There, were no, it wasn't on Earth. It wasn't in a creepy house. You know, it's funny because certain science fiction writers had tried to combine the horror and science fiction genres. One of them was Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson wrote a wonderful episode of, of *Twilight Zone* called *Death Ship*, and in that he was trying to combine the horror and science fiction modes. It was about three astronauts who land on an alien planet and find a duplicate of their own ship crashed and their own dead bodies in that ship. And they have to decide if they're dead, if it's aliens pulling some kind of tele- telepathic hoax on them, like, like Ray Bradbury did in Mars is Heaven, in the Martian Chronicles, uh, or what. And it was horrific, but mainly intellectually horrific, not, not hugely scary where, you know, you can't sleep that night. But Alien was a very different thing, because the, everything about it was disquieting, uh, alarming and you know you're watching it and it starts slowly they go they find the, the alien ship they go into it and then of course the, the first big scare is when the uh, the facehugger attacks John Hurt and and of course when it when it bursts out of his chest that was just. I remember, because you, again, you don't know what's, what's coming. And when that happened, I was in the audience with thousands of, of, of attendees from the World Science Fiction Theater, all the top science fiction writers. And I was sitting in the row behind Harlan Ellison, the great writer of City on the Edge of Forever for Star Trek. And when that happened, all of us, including Harlan, jumped a foot, jumped a foot. It was. And the feeling of it was, the feeling of the film was, I have no idea what's going to happen. It was deeply scary and deeply disturbing and just a phenomenal film and at the end we gave it a, a thundering ovation because we knew we had seen something that was new totally new and fresh and spectacular and wonderful and amazing and just just a masterpiece and uh, and of course Sigourney Weaver that put her on the map and, uh, and, and and again unlike many bad films bad horror films where people just get knocked off for no good reason in this one the bravest, smartest person survives. And, and many of you know that, uh, that originally that, that role was supposed to be a male role, and, and they made it a female role, which was great, and they didn't change the lines. And so, again, um, she was strong and she was tough, and she's the one who says, you know, don't let it in. It could infect the ship. It, it, you know, quarantine. And, it, again, it was following a very interesting biological model that we had never seen in a film before. Never, never, never. And, um, and they were trying to think of, okay, how does it work? And incubates on, it has these eggs, it incubates in human beings, it then sheds its skin like a snake and grows. Very clever, very, very clever. And so, so that was the first one. And then it was many years before there was a, 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 second, a second film. And in that case, James Cameron was very, very smart in not just repeating the tropes of the first film. What he did was he took the design tropes of the first film and he made it an action film, and that was, again, brilliant. He changed genres. And, uh, and in that case, I, I love Aliens. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite films. And Alien is a great film as well. But Aliens, what I loved about it was he was very influenced by Starship Troopers, by Heinlein, the novel, not the movie. It hadn't come out yet. And uh, it's just a thrilling, wonderfully realized film. Very distinctive characters. And again, in that one, the smart people survive. The people who have the best hearts, the biggest hearts, survive. So compassion rules the day, bravery rules the day, honor rules the day, and people are intelligent. They act intelligently. And, um, and that was one thing where Alien, one of, one of the few sins that Alien committed was that Alien had a cat and they go after the cat and they're looking for the cat and in reality you're going, no, don't, don't leave the cat for God's sake. And that was the one and that's why in the in the second film, uh, Ripley says, The cat, you're staying behind this time. And uh but, but those first two films of course were were um just wonderful and, and if you haven't seen them I'm sure you have, but uh, go back and see them because uh you will be well served. Now then of course Alien went into its long period of, of lesser returns. And um and, you know, the third film was very troubled, and it's a fascinating... You know, if you read up on any of the Alien films, uh, you'll find it very interesting, the, the development problems, the challenges. You know, the second film, the third... The second film came out wonderfully. Third film... And, and by the way, a friend of mine was on the studio lot, 20th Century Lot, when uh, he was an executive producer on... TV shows and uh, a writer very talented writer and doing features as well and an executive at at one point came to him and said we've got a script and I wanted you to read it and give me your thoughts and he read it my friend Joe Dougherty read it and he said it's perfect and the executive said yes that's what I thought and it was the script for Aliens, and they greenlit it and made it. <laughs> but he read it before it was even shot. So um, then, then Alien Three had all of its problems, and you know with the Wood Planet and being in development for a long time, and and on and on, and um, you know and not a great film, very problematical, but a very interesting cast, a good try. And then Alien Four, which was written by Joss Whedon, is interesting in several ways. It's actually not a bad script at all. But the director is the, is the French director of. Uh, uh, City of Lost Children and he has this strange French sense of humor that really doesn't work with the material and, uh, and so I think the director is at cross purposes with the material but again I like the cast very much I like Winona Ryder I like uh, Sigourney Weaver is terrific of course some of the other casting choices are not great Ron Perlman is a very powerful presence but, um, but if you watch it and look it's not a bad script at all and it's a very interesting script because again it's doing something different from the first film and the second film and uh, and I, I rather like that film, though some of the design elements are, are poor. Uh, some of the design elements are great. But also, if you, if you look at it as the pilot of uh, Firefly sat, slash Serenity, that makes it very interesting. Because when you realize it's about sort of this, this ship of, of rogues and renegades and freebooters, and, uh, and you say, well, hmm, that's really interesting, because that's, that sort of is like what became Firefly uh, slash Serenity. And I like Serenity very much. And uh, so if you view it in that way, of Joss Whedon trying out ideas... Then it becomes quite quite fun and quite interesting. the one problem the big problem with um, with, the, with the fourth alien film is you ha- you, know, you have to top yourself you have to in a horror film or an action film you have to top yourself progressively you don 't you don't have a big monster and then end with a smaller monster and that 's what the fourth alien film does. It has this sort of human alien hybrid that 's really awful looking the design is terrible and it ends up just kind of being a big babyish non-monster, sort of, kind of monster thing. So, whereas Aliens was smart enough to realize... And the first Alien film, too. You start with a smaller creature and then get a bigger one. So, in in the first Alien film, it's the alien um, baby, basically, the the, the embryo uh, that bursts out of the chest... And and then it becomes the giant monster, which is, again, a huge surprise. And the the little creature moves very quickly to escape, and then the big creature moves very slowly and very ominously. Because any any horror movie, you have to say, say, do my monsters move slow, or do they move fast? This is, again, a a prime issue in zombie movies, Uh, fast zombies versus slow zombies. And in Alien Covenant, it's a fast monster. It moves quickly. But, again, not that believably. It seems kind of cg and uh whereas in the second alien film aliens it was like okay they have you've seen the alien and you have a whole bunch of them and then you have the alien queen which again is a superbly designed monster and it's bigger and it's scarier and it's it's a terrific way to top it and have the movie have a satisfying conclusion the fourth alien film has a lesser conclusion which makes it a disappointing ending and then you have the two, the, the the alien versus predator movies which are Whatever you know, the first one's better than the second one. But again, it's kind of like, like they're almost like wrestling. It's like, oh, this team up with that team up. You know, it's just film. You know, franchises are always in trouble where they bring you know someone from a st- from someone or something from a different franchise and combine them. It's kind of like they're they're running on fumes, and so they just do that to squeeze some more dollars out of the audience. And you know, you're not going to get great work generally out of that. And I've never particularly liked Predator. It's just it seems like. Like sort of a half-assed alien to me, and um, but you know, but but again, if they if, if they're your cup of tea, terrific. So then we get to Prometheus. Now it's fascinating because really Scott again comes back to science fiction, and Prometheus is a gorgeously designed film. I've, I've talked about it in other Mr. Sci-Fi videos, and if you turn the sound off and just watch the visuals, it's gorgeous. It's terrific. I often turn it on just as video wallpaper. I love the visuals in Alien and the cast. Is many wonderful actors. Uh, I particularly like Charlize Theron and Michael Fassbender in that film. And in fact, before the movie came out, they were on a panel at a science fiction convention with Ridley Scott. And when you see them up close, they are astonishingly, astonishingly beautiful human beings. And and I'm so glad that Charlize Theron got uh, Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road, because she is a wonderful action heroine, and 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 intelligent and powerful and phenomenal. And she finally got because because in from for me part of the problem in. Um, and Prometheus is that when, you know, when the characters come out of hypersleep, she immediately goes and does push-ups and is tough, and she's worried about the rest of the crew, any, any, you know, anyone killed, no, and... And she should be the heroine. She's the interesting, strong, tough one. And she's the one I want to take the journey with. Whereas, whereas the actress, you know, Nomi Rapace, uh, who's uh, supposedly playing a Brit, but has, but of course has a Swedish accent, uh, is, you know, she's throwing up and, and she's just, you know, she's behind the play throughout and just kind of dumb and, and, being knocked around and and just you know not tough and again this is this is something that in the initial alien films they saw have a strong heroine have her be smart have her be tough have her be compassionate have her be brave you know have her be concerned about other people you know very very good very very good and this is a mistake they made in prometheus there's lots of mistakes in it, and we could go on and on about that. But I'm sure you you have the same problems with it I do. You know, if you have if you have this alien white, sickly white, gray boa constrictor thing come out of this black goop, you're not going to go, hey, pretty, pretty, hey, pretty, pretty, because obviously it's going to kill you. I mean, <laughs> what else is going to happen? You know, and you're a scientist. You're going to do that? No, 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 May, You know, it's uh, Damon Knight, who was one of my teachers at Clarion, uh, the Clarion Writers Workshop. He was a great science fiction writer. He wrote to serve. Man, which was made into a great Twilight Zone episode, he, he referred to something called the Idiot Plot, and the Idiot Plot is a plot that only works if everyone in it acts like an idiot, and that's certainly Prometheus. And, uh, and now we get to Alien Covenant. Now, see, here's another part of, part of this whole thing that's very, very interesting, which is that um, when, you know, when we saw the first Alien movie, there are questions that arise in the first Alien movie, and it naturally led to sequels. And James Cameron came up with a great idea for the sequel, which is, okay, what are the questions that first movie engenders? Well, one big question, of course, is what laid those eggs? Because clearly, there's the little alien, and then there's the big one, and, you know, is there something else that laid the eggs? And f- again, following the insect analogy, he came up with the idea of the, the alien queen laying all of, the, all of those eggs. So again, a great idea, a great extrapolation of the, of the, of the um, physiology of that species. And that was clever and it really worked and uh and it made sense but ridley scott the question that came up to him was when they go into the alien ship and they see the dead um alien uh gigantic alien uh pilot with the, with his chest burst open so clearly there was an alien that burst out of him he really scott was saying well who were those guys now he may have been the only person who asked that question certainly it's not a question that most people ask because again That was just a scene setting thing. It's an alien that was killed. You assume that that the aliens go from the monsters go from species to species incubating in them and then killing them. And so, um, you know, so it wasn't a big question for most people, but for Ridley Scott, it was. And his thought was, well, let's do a movie where we see those guys. Okay, and so in in Prometheus, they turn out to be human-ish. They sort of are are, are like living versions of Michelangelo's David, which again figures in Alien Covenant. And uh, okay, fine. I don't think it was a big question that we had on our minds, most of the audience, but fine. And Ridley Scott is, is now in, you know, 79, and he's thinking about mortality, and he's thinking about the big questions of God and the afterlife and so forth and it's by the way it 's also very interesting the way the, the worlds of Blade Runner and alien intersect because there 's a similar graphic in, in in the spinner and the alien and the ship the Nostromo in in alien where where it gives a little nod and there 's of course of course androids in both both films you can actually see a way of the worlds of Alien and the worlds of Blade Runner being the same world, with the one exception that they give androids a limited lifespan in Blade Runner, and uh, and you know, and in and in Alien, they don't have limited lifespans as far as we know. So, um, but one could could put them in the same worlds and uh, the same world. So that's kind of interesting. And by the way, Moon, the movie Moon, also could take place in the Blade Runner universe as well. So uh, though Ridley Scott didn't do that film, but again, very similar backstories and universes and attitudes. So, so now we come to Alien Covenant, and there's two really great prologues to the film, um, or at least really interesting prologues that you can watch online, and they'll almost certainly be on the Blu-ray and DVD. One shows David and Numi Rapace, the Michael Fassbender and Noomi Rapace, uh, flying to the world of the engineers, those, those alien creatures, you know, the, the ones who the- theoretically engineered humanity, um, flying to their world, and it's a very nice prologue and and interesting and and sheds new light on the film. And then there's another little prologue with the crew on the Covenant, and again that sheds some light on uh, on who they are. And James Franco is the captain. And you see him as the captain, whereas uh, in the in the movie, you know, he burns to death at the beginning. Again, I said there'd be spoilers, so if you don't, if you haven't seen the movie, don't don't listen to me any further than this. But um, but it's 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 fun. It's very very fun. And here's my feeling about Alien Covenant. It's an entertaining film. It's gorgeously designed visually. There's many, many things to enjoy in it, but it has such dumb things in it, too. People are... One of the worst things in horror movies, and it's a trope that we all hate, is where we know there's a monster, we know there's people being killed, and we just wander off alone to take a bath, or take a shower, or have sex. And, of course, the monster gets us. And this is something that Ridley Scott does again and again and again in Alien Covenant. Now, the other thing that is really bothersome in Alien Covenant... well, The one, the one good thing, by the way is you know in in Prometheus David is infecting human beings with the alien spore uh he's doing things that you say why is he doing that why is he doing that and in this film the answer to the question which is he basically hates people wants them to die and is using the alien uh weaponry the biological weaponry of the alien species to uh to wipe out people so okay that sort of kind of works though it kind of makes him a terrible monstrous villain crazy person or crazy android but okay fine so um so, but, but, but in, but, you know, but in this film, in, in Alien Covenant, the, the other thing that is really, really, um, there's several things that are goofy, just, just, just really goofy. I mean, there's a switcheroo of, of one character for another that the, everyone in the audience, every, even little kids, will know who that is, and the, and the characters don't. And you just go, and again, this is the idiot plot, where people are acting like idiots. What normal people would, would, would immediately leap to, you know, there's there's an alien on on the on the big ship, and how did that get there? And maybe maybe who you know, it's the uh, the, the evil Michael Vassbender, not the good one, but they don't guess that until too late, too late. So, um, bad idea, really bad idea, and uh, and you know the other things about it are in aliens, in Alien and Aliens, they work out a biology that makes sense. In this movie, in Alien Covenant, the biology is like what? It's like okay, so there's the evil alien black dust that was in the ampules in in Prometheus but now it's in these little pods you can step on and it releases this stuff and it gets into your body and then that germinates into some kind of proto-alien creature that bursts out of your back Uh, and then and then but there's also the alien eggs but there's no alien queen and on and on and on it's just like it's all over the place and it's like what is this doing? how does this work? the rules are, are just just loopy just loopy but uh Anyway, so that's, <clears throat> that's some of it. That's some of it. Um, but so, the, so the bottom line is Alien Covenant is worth seeing, it's fun, it's entertaining, but it will drive you crazy. It's not as bad as Prometheus, but Prometheus, again, had some brilliant things in it. So, so that's, that's the main stuff. And if you want to buy stuff from Alien Covenant or, or, or Prometheus, you can go to the prop store, and they have stuff for sale that is very cool, but expensive, but very, very cool from those movies and other films as well. But, um, so that's the journey of Alien and Alien Covenant. There's also a really good audio, audio play, um, uh, based on Alien. It's set between the first film and the second film, and the actress, they have an actress who's imitating, um, Sigourney Weaver and does a really good job, and you can download that from Audible. It's, it's, it's something like Alien Out of the Shadows, something like that. And you can find it, and it's 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 fun. And there's alien novels, and alien action figures, and alien um, uh, graphic novels, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, it is a rich world and a fascinating one. And uh, and but I, I'm and I'm really um, gratified that I was there at the beginning and saw those original paintings before anybody did. And uh, and it was it's been just an amazing journey with this this franchise. And and again Ridley Scott's work has been hugely influential on me. And between Alien and Blade Runner, one of my other favorite movies, and certainly in Space Command, I'm influenced. We've got synthetics, we've got all sorts of stuff happening that have similar resonances. But it's a story all its own. This is the project that I'm now in post-production on and continuing to shoot. But uh, but so that's about it for now regarding all of the Alien journeys, the Alien franchises. There'll be more Alien films. We'll see where they go with it. But hopefully they'll they'll. You know, learn from their errors. I doubt it. You know, <laughs> you know, but uh, but they'll continue to be at least interesting. And 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 the cast, by the way, in Alien Covenant is is quite good. Um, there's some good characters. And but again, it's it's all over the place in terms of what people do and why they do it and the logic of why they do it and so on and so forth. And two more uh, parenthetical notes about Alien and the Alien franchise. Uh, essentially, the first is about Ash, and another big cheat in the first Alien film. One of the few cheats is the fact that uh, Ash, the character of Ash, attacks Ripley, and we're led to believe initially that he's been taken over by the alien in trying to kill her, and then ultimately when they stop him, we discover that he's a synthetic, uh, a replicant, an, an android. And this is a cheat, because there's been nothing in the film before that that in any way suggests that there's um, androids in this world, synthetics, that it's it's uh, totally out of the blue. And so that was a misdirect and a cheat. But you forgive it, because the movie is so, so terrific, and uh, and it also explains why he lets the uh, the uh, face hugger in to the ship because of you know who and what he is. Um, the second interesting thing around Alien is that uh, after Prometheus but before Alien Covenant, it was announced that Neil Blomkamp, uh, who did District Nine and Elysium, was going to do his own Alien film, and it was going to star Sigour- Sigourney Weaver and he wanted Michael Bean in it, and the basic his idea because the question always with alien is where do you put it in the chronology so you don't have to deal with the third and fourth films which are basically considered lesser works and so his solution was to pretend that those didn't exist and just have it be a sequel to aliens where essentially because people were very upset that michael bean's character and, and the character of newt were killed uh, so uh so uh, cavalierly at the beginning of the alien of the third alien film and so in this one it would be a continuation of their stories with with ripley and that would have been cool, and um, and I've subsequently met the actress who played Newt, Carrie Henn, and she's quite wonderful, and she's now a third grade school teacher, and uh, and she's every bit as sweet and and charming as you would think from from seeing her in the film, and I have a signed photo of her as Newt, on on the wall at at, at my home. So, um, but uh, but because uh, Ridley Scott decided that this the sequel to Prometheus was going to be an alien film, uh, they pulled the pl- the plug on. Uh, on Blomkamp's film, Neil Blomkamp's film, and that's a shame because that's a that's a film I would have liked to have seen. Uh, in a way, Neil Blomkamp's films have been to, to a certain extent diminishing returns. I love District Nine, and Elysium is two thirds of a really good movie, and then the ending is kind of very funky. And then, of course, Chappie we needn't discuss. But uh, but one always hopes with a, with a filmmaker of Neil Blomkamp's talent that he'll learn how to um, finish a film again. He'll learn how to bring that that quality of, of uh, dramatic completion to a film. I have, I have great hopes for him. He's a hugely talented filmmaker and, and writer. So um, I would have liked to have seen that film. and I'd be very interested to read that script if anyone's a friend of Neil Blomkamp's. Uh, reach out to him on my behalf. So that's it for now. Uh, Mark Zickrey, Mr. Sci-Fi. You can subscribe to the Mr. Sci-Fi channel. More to talk about. I just went to the Drama Summit. So more to talk about regarding Space Command and all the other things that I'm up to. So that's it for now. So we will talk soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Take
1: care. Bye-bye. <laughs> There you go. Big thank you to Mark. Mark, thank you so much. Like you say, I put a link on the Mark site, markzickery.com. Pop over there and try and check out Mark's Mr. Sci-Fi, the YouTube channel. You know what I mean? It, there's some great insights. It's just off the cuff, but it's, it's en- engaging because it's, like you say, Mark's there. You know, Mark is there. You're not sitting on the northeast coast of England, you know what I mean, in a cloudy, wet day in, in a living room. He's there at the place where it's happening. It, Mark, it's happening here, should I say. So, a big thank you. So, that is today's show. Before we go, though, I'll just give you a little kind of insight of what's happening now with my low-carb, very low-carb, high-fat, you know, lifestyle change. Well, I'm still... Going on that direction, you know, I'm still doing that. When I, and man, I've done so much research on it as well now. When I first started, you know, it's quite, you've got to, you know, do your research. So I was jumping in straight away with kind of loads of like fat, you know what I mean? Yeah, you've got to, you've got to, the putting in the fat kind of helps you get through the day, you know, you're not hungry. And you're not, mind you, that's just a bizarre thing, you're not hungry at all. But now I'm slowly changing that diet, it just, you know, the fats coming from, say, nuts, avocados, you know, all them kind of things, dairy products, where I'm not just kind of glugging, you know, all the kind of the fat, 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 trying to get it in. I'm just, I'm eating what I'm eating. And it, it, it is, honestly, it's as healthy as out. And now I picked up a book by, what was this called? By UK Dr. Michael Mosley. Now Dr. Michael Mosley is the horizon presenter and he like you see his doctor, he's been through all sorts and he puts himself through all these all these different experiments and you know they're fascinating. He did a sleep one before and, it, and he's a bit of an insomniac and he if you watch his programmes, you know what I mean? What he comes up with the final conclusions is remarkable and it works. Do you know what I mean? So I've getting all these books. And I'm reading the one at the moment. is called Healthy Guts. I think it's Healthy Guts. It's something to do with guts. It's all your, you know, your, your, your biome, your, all your guts, all your, you know. And it's saying it's linked to your brain. It's the same kind of material. It's all linked there. If, you, if your stomach and your guts are in good condition, with your your microbes and your bacteria, it all helps. You know, it all helps moods. It all helps. You know, the the way of living, healthy, good sleep. Everything's kind of covered in it. So now I'm getting into fermenting. <laughs> <laughs> Fermenting all sorts. So, when I finish now, when I put this mic down and say goodbye, I'm going to jump into the kitchen. I've got some carrots. Carrots. I've got some cabbage and I'm going to be doing some sauerkraut. Yes, I've been we've been consuming in our family now lots of sauerkraut, but I'm going to make me one. I'm going to do a red cabbage and a beetroot one and a white cabbage with blueberries and caraway seeds. So, that's going to kick off. Then... Coming today is me yogurt maker. <laughs> Eating lots of yogurt. So we're gonna, I'm gonna make some live yogurt and try that. Do you know what I mean? And you know, it's I'm using or oh, we're buying at the moment that ongan natural, you know. So I'm getting the full fat. I'm not none of this kind of low fat stuff. And we're going down I'm going down that route. And anyone heard of kefir grains now this is a little bit similar to that yogurt but compare it to putting cheap nasty fuel in your car and the most delicate blend of you know anything to drive that engine faster more powerful. kefir grains mixed in milk full fat milk over 24 hours produces this almost tangy thick gooey liquid which is just Apparently, the best thing you can put in your stomach compared to yoghurt. You know, yoghurt, live yoghurt is good, but it's nowhere near this. And these cultures apparently last forever. You know, you, you buy them first, like you say, and then you put them in. You strain after 24 hours, you strain this gloopy consistency. The grains are left and they've multiplied and you put them and you just carry on repeating and repeating. So eventually I'll have loads do you know what I mean? And I can even send them out of is. Do you know what I mean? And that's what ha- apparently happens. So I will tell you how all that goes. Do you know what I mean? Breakfast today, right? This is it. Get this. Breakfast today was 200 grams of full-fat natural yogurt, can of wild salmon. I think it was a 200-gram can of wild salmon. few onions, flax seed, pumpkin seeds, <laughs> sunflower seeds. What else was in there? Some green peppers to bulk it up there. Almond nuts, some olive oil, and some apple cider vinegar. I'm glugging apple cider vinegar as if it's like <laughs> lager. You know what I mean? Oh, so, that is there. Uh, the captain's getting his sell-all, pull around, getting healthy. We're going to have to wait. And, you know, I'm, I'm just trying. But I know with this healthy guts book, you can... Right, if you're, if you're eating... Now's the time to put it down, leave it alone just for a minute. You can get tests done on your your gut or your contents of your gut after it leaves you. Do you you know where I'm going? (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about here? You can send it off. Now, you can send in America and maybe Canada. It's already The company's already set up and Dr. Michael Mosey gives you the address to go to. It's not just yet registered in the UK, but as soon as it does... I'm on the email list to kind of get that sorted and get 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 it tested you know and yeah you put it in the pot out into the post and there it goes and you get a lovely description of what you know because it's if you haven't got the good bugs in it, you can start in reducing them do you know what I mean and I did this you know when I first started the the kind of low carb high fat diet I it's called Threva, I think, on the UK. I sent off my bloods, you know, again, a little packet came through the door. I subscribed to that, took my bloods, and they're all fine. Do you know, and that's what I was worried about when you're thinking, oh, high fats, mm, don't like that. It, you know, it would be nice to see what I was like before that, you know, because before that, like I say, I work shifts, which is not the best at all. Anyway, it's just, you know, even if you had the healthier diet, it's still a kind of nightmare of a for your body. But, you know, I would take a large bag of crisps and some biscuits on a night shift. Do you know what I mean? It was that kind of diet. You know what I mean? It wasn't a pretty sight. Do you know what I mean? But this seems to be working. And what I like about it is you're not desperate to come off. You know, there's no like, like, I get to that thing and then I can kind of cut, you know, and put it back on. It just feels like this is a way of life now. You know, it's like more so becoming a vegetarian where... You just, that's the way you roll, you know what I mean? It's not like a diet, like a two-month diet, and then you're back to normal eating. You know, hopefully, I keep this on like this, and I keep eating the kind of low carb, which doesn't spike me insulin, which doesn't make you hungry, do you know what I mean? Which, it, it's, it's all to do with that. So, if you want, I'll put a link on it to Dr. Michael Mosley, you know, his site and his books. You know, like I say, I'm getting them all. And I've just—it just came yesterday—the eight-week blood blood sugar diet, which I just got it for the sake of getting it. Do you know what I mean? To be quite honest, but I know that's basically the low carb, high fat diet because I had a little sp- sprint through it there, and it's fascinating. And fasting—I'm doing fasting as well, and I'm even doing the Michael Mosley one, which is two days out of the the week, two five, I think the the fast diet it's called. And I don't—I I do that anyways now with this kind of. The low carb, you know, you you're not hungry, so every day now I'll have me f- first meal between twelve and one, in in the daytime, and then I'll have the other one round about half five, and that's it. And I've been doing that now for a few a couple of months, but now I'm gonna just you know just try for the sake of it because try the way I think it's six hundred calories twice a week. That's all you have on on say a Monday and a Thursday. So I'm gonna do that, and. It's again. Once your body knows it's becoming hungry, it starts to produce all you know. Your biome, your gut starts to kind of, and you start making better you know microbes down there, which again helps in your sleep. The the fasting, it's proven now that that the, the kind of you know it's it's a a good indication. You know you you won't get heart disease, strokes. You know it's it's putting all your kind of your eggs in a row in the correct place to prevent you in later life, you know what I mean? <clears throat> and when you think, you know, I'm rambling on here, but you've only got one, do you know what I mean? And and I know this sounds a bit weird as well, and this I was a bit sceptical, but your mood gets better, do you know what I mean? And I've been kind of plagued with anxiety for a while, and, you know, I still get a little footer, but there's, and I don't know if this is placebo or anything, but I wake up a lot, you know, normally you kind of wake up in a, in a dower, you know, for that first kind of, 20 minutes it's like a, but that's not happening now do you know what i mean and throughout the day it just seems like mood is a great thing and it? it's a i'm lighter in me step you know in me mood and everything like that so there you go that's a little a little ramble through the the lifestyle yes i'm fermenting and i'm looking forward to, to making me natural yogurt <laughs> i told my wife that Melanie, Will you? St- are you staying in tomorrow? Because me, me yogurt maker's coming. I couldn't make it in. You can like boil up milk. That's How you do it? You boil up milk, let it cool down to a certain temperature, then add in a couple of spoonfuls of natural live yogurt, and then you, you you wrap it in towels and you know you you set it in a warm place. Well, the the YouTubes I've watched, you know, they're putting it in the oven. <clears throat> and if I'm on shifts or anything, and I've got this towel wrapped pan in the oven, no one else can use the oven, so. I went down the route of getting a yoghurt maker and it was a Lakeland one. And on Amazon on the UK there now, it was 20-something or 36. And it was only for £10. God on, man. <laughs> there you go. So that and my kifa Grains, I'm going to be... That I think it's nowhere le- like it, but, you know, a bit like that kind of Yakov drink or whatever they call it. You know what I mean? It's that kind of... Thing that I'm gonna be doing as well, feeding feeding the guts and again when the time comes and I get the email that I can test, I'll be testing. <laughs> Until next week, just like you say, good night from me.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in your transmissions, I'm to Rocket ships, I need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by.